However, as we become an adult, we come to realize, most of us at least, that those habits and patterns don't serve us. That maybe many of us have lived the consequences of that same habitual way of being. So as an adult, yes, when we can empower ourselves to possibly even release the shame that maybe we carry from those wounding experiences and or from the way that we've attempted to cope to the best of our ability, though now assuming the responsibility, taking the steering wheel and creating change, empowering ourselves now and almost relearning all of that, relearning that we can create safety in ourselves or in our relationships in a new way. We have to update because again, a lot of these habits and patterns happen at a time where we didn't have the ability to take that responsibility, where we didn't have the support systems around us to help us. That's Dr. Nicole Lupera, and this is Time to Talk. Welcome to Time to Talk, where I speak to life seekers, healers, and leaders in their fields to break down the stigmas of mental health, heal, and become emotionally courageous by having one conversation at a time. This week, it's time to talk about doing the work with Dr. Nicole Lupera. Dr. Nicole Lupera is known as the Holistic Psychologist Online, and as a clinical psychologist, she was tired of the limitations of traditional psychotherapy. And so wanting more for her clients and herself, she embarked on a mental, physical, and spiritual journey, which saw her picking up the tools to heal and do her work. She began to share that with the world, and so the Holistic Psychologist was born online, amassing a community of over 3 million people. In this conversation, we discuss her book, How to Do the Work, which came out yesterday. And this is a piece of work that explores the way we think about mental health and self-care and about how we can take the power into our own hands. She takes to Instagram daily to share her ways, findings and grows her community with the people that need to find a way to do the work. And we talk about trauma, emotional maturity, trauma archetypes, the trauma body, and what that means for us as people navigating this world and life. And life, and life, and life, and life. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and share among as many people as you can. Let's get the word out there that here is the place for confident, wholehearted, and compassionate conversation. Finally, before we head over to the ads, my book, Time to Talk, How Men Think About Love, Belonging, and Connection is available for pre-order. So go Click that link down in the description. All right, let's get with some ads. This episode of Time to Talk is brought to you by BetterHelp. When I first started going to therapy, it was one of the hardest things I could ever do. Because it was one of the most vulnerable things that you can ever do, sitting in front of somebody and sharing your deepest, darkest self and going through a process of healing, that wasn't the first part that was hard. The first part that was hard was finding a therapist. So I'm proud to say that this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. Note, it's not a crisis line, it's not self-help, it's professional counselling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas, but we are in a pandemic and the more help we can get, the better. So visit betterhelp.com. Time to talk 21. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash time to talk 
2021 and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional and get 10% off your first month. The service is available worldwide, guys, so there's literally no excuses. It's that simple. Head over to betterhelp.com forward slash time to talk 21 and you can get 10% off today. Let them know I sent you BetterHelp. Start living a happier life today. Now, let's get into this conversation. Buckle up, stay encouraged, and be brave. Let's talk to Dr. Nicole. So, welcome to the show, Dr. Nicole LaPera, the holistic psychologist. I'm so excited to speak to you today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much, Alex, for having the time for this chat with me this morning. Yeah. Where are you situated right now? Where am I situated? Yeah. I'm in LA at Venice Beach, actually. So contrary to the sweater that I'm wearing, I'm indeed in sunshine. It's a rainy day today, though. Oh, okay. I don't know. I, whenever I think of LA, I just think of sunshine, and I just I've never been before, so all I think of is sunshine and uh, and um, and TV shows. It's pretty good representation. <laughs> so. It pretty much embodies that which LA is in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. So. Um, I wanted to, you know, welcome to the show and thank you for um, for coming. And I wanted to talk to you just generally about what holistic psychology is and get to the grips of understanding what trauma is and how it lodges itself in the body and trying to understand that and a bit about your journey. And of course, we'll be talking about your work, how to do the work, um, your book that's going to be out today, actually, by the time this goes out, it'll be out today. So... Let's start with, I've got a question for you. So tell me about what happened on your 30th birthday. And because I'm leading up to 30 and whenever I see people talk about their 30th, I'm like, it's just like this big seismic shift. And, I just, and I'm like, I'm just anticipating it. If we haven't been through enough already, I have to go through another one when I reach 30. So tell me what happened when you turned 30. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I don't think my story um, was the seismic shift um, halfway as much as kind of just like a, a slow smoldering accumulation of stuff. If you would have, Alex, outwardly looked at my life as I was approaching 30, um, you would have seen that I had, as I love to do, checked a lot of the boxes. Um, I had the successful practice. I very much, you know, I was born in Philadelphia, so very much a city girl at heart. Um, I was living in Philadelphia in my home city. Um, I was in a relationship uh, I had all the things that I had intended to have um, by the time, like I said, that I neared 30. And for me, it mm. wasn't a, a total shift. And I, I wasn't so surprised at the fact that while I had those things, I was feeling really unfulfilled, really detached and disconnected from that life that I just described myself having. So it didn't necessarily feel like I had accomplished and was living in that fulfilled way that I think many of us imagine. Um, however, yeah. when I spoke to my friends who were also nearing approaching 30 or in their 30s, I heard a lot of the same reports. I have no energy. I kind of hate my job. I can't wait for the weekend. Oh, my relationships, they're okay. I spend a lot of my time out with my friends who were feeling the same way. So I share that because I didn't necessarily have um, reason to, to wonder what was wrong with me because I saw a lot of the same experiences reflected in those around me um, until I really began to dive into why, began to explore 
um, what could be keeping me so disconnected. Um, by that time, I was seeing a lot of the similar patterns of disconnection in my clients. Um, and that really led me into my journey of understanding, really trying to understand why I had continued to struggle despite checking the boxes and also mm. why I had continued to now witness my clients struggle, some of whom I had accumulated hour upon hour of therapy session together year upon year. And I saw their continued disempowerment, their continued inability to change or the stuckness that at that point I was seeing was quite universal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's this whole, <laughs> I know this whole idea of the Saturn return and just getting to that point and everybody starts to kind of um, have this shift and, um, and I always found it interesting, but then how did that kind of lead you into the holistic side of your psychology? And what is the holistic psychologist? Absolutely. So as I began to, like I said, dive into exploring um, mm. why I was feeling just just so disconnected, so unfulfilled, um, first and foremost, I, as a lot of us do, I went online. I went online seeking first to understand um, some physical stuff that was going on. So as someone who's had digestive issues, sleep issues, chronic anxiety, including panic attacks, and I think that kind of brain fog, that like sheet over your brain that comes along with all of that, I had that as long as I can remember. Um, though as I was entering in my 30s, I started to, those symptoms really got exacerbated. I started to forget my words mid-sentence. I started to faint. I started to have kind of scary type physical symptoms. And the reason why I share that is I went online with my first intention being to diagnose what the heck was wrong with me. Um, I had localized the problem in my brain. I was convinced that something must be wrong. I never fainted before in my life. Now I was fainting quite regularly. Um, and in that exploration, I was my mind was really blown, Alex. I learned of this whole new world um, of epigenetic you know, health, essentially, which really is honoring, yes, the role that our genetics play um, in our current situations, though also it entered a new factor, um, which was the ability, our daily lifestyle choices and how those choices really impact um, our genetic components. So for very, up until that point, the reason why I, that was such a seismic shift for me, up until that point, um, I embody the belief that our genetics were our destiny. And I saw evidence of all of those physical symptoms that I described, including my anxiety and the more psychological side of things. I saw evidence of that in my family. So I had believed, I think like a lot of us do, that the reason we all were experiencing the same things lie in our genetics that we shared. So for me, yeah. even opening that door a little bit as I describe it of questioning, well, wait a minute. Are there, you know, shifts and changes I can make in how I'm living that might be contributing to these symptoms that I'm feeling? And before I believed it to be true, I began to create change. I started to pay more attention to how I was treating my physical body. Because remember, I did localize my issue right in my physical body. And what I began to see is change. I was actually able to create new lifestyle habits um, that for the first time ever were beginning to create change in my anxiety. We're beginning to decrease it. Um, so that for me was really um, a powerful lived experience to have. Um, and then, of course, I sought to understand um, how all of these interacting parts, our physical bodies, our minds, the mental world that I was, of course, trained as a doctor in and your training as a yeah. right, to, to work within. And also, of course, I believe that there's another 
kind of the indescribable thing, whether or not we want to call it essence or spirit or soul, really our uniqueness that makes us us. And then I really began to formulate what I now believe is the holistic model of wellness, really honoring the integration of the full self. Yeah, yeah, that's super important. And it's super um, relevant to actually think of now, nowadays as well. I think people are getting a lot more understanding that there's a disconnect between the body, the mind, and everyone's trying to find their, their way to kind of some sort of alignment in themselves and in the way that things happen and um i get what you're saying around this whole um, body stuff and uh i know that for me well, i burnt out a, a lot um, when i was i was a journalist um i worked in the newsroom it was a high pressure high <laughs> intensity very um, macho very like run and get the story be aggressive do all of that stuff and that understanding of um, ignoring the way the body feels about things because the body has signals right it it tells you when you when you're uncomfortable in certain things um why is it that we don't listen yeah the body you'll always hear me kind of cite that the body contains infinite wisdom i actually believe it is the seat of our soul's knowledge that that deeper intuitive space that we're all many of us are looking to either rediscover and reconnect with with or begin to trust again um and the body does, you know, send out signals. A lot of us, however, become really conditioned or just practiced at ignoring them for whatever reason. The most simple reason that many of us avoid our bodies is because at some time, usually in our past experiences, we were in a circumstances, a circumstance where we didn't feel safe in our body. And the reason why I'm bringing up that concept of safety is because our we're evolutionarily driven to create safe experiences in our life. It actually is what has sustained our being as humans, you know, in, in the eons that we've been here. So to understand that, that role that safety plays at a time, we didn't feel safe in our bodies, again, for many different reasons. So we adapt it and we create it for most of us. We began to create that habit of that disconnection that you're speaking of. Yeah. So what were some of the, the habits that you picked up? In terms of my feeling or in terms of my conditioned habits? Because <laughs> I have them. Wow. Both. Then, okay, in terms of your, okay, let's start with your healing then. I think that's what a lot of people are really tuned in to figure out. But um, what about your healing? What were some of the habits you decided to kind of um, apply to? When I came to realize um, that I was mm. living in a very conditioned habit, as many of us are, of living from our subconscious or that autopilot, mm-hmm. as many of us have defined it as, um, when, once I came to witness how disconnected I was from that conscious state, um, how I was letting those old habits and patterns kind of run my show in a very reactive way, as they will do from that subconscious space, my most foundational habit that is the most foundational that I talk about the most frequently was of consciousness, was of learning how to be actually firing from a different part of my brain, um, the prefrontal cortex, which is where consciousness lives. The reason why that's important is because that allows us to shift from those old habits and patterns to begin to create new choices. So for me, like I said, once I observed how how unconscious I was, um, how I really wasn't present to myself day in and day out, um, I just kind of went about my day in that very patterned way. That's what I mean when I say autopilot. Um, I then saw the need to create a new conscious way where I was showing up in each moment and navigating that moment and not allowing my past 
to determine my reaction in that moment, as many of us do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I've been having this conversation with one of my friends about um, how much control we have over the things that happen to us and the way that we are going and where we and where we end up and the kind of directions we move. Um, I have a, a, a picture in my mind of taking control of a steering wheel and just saying, all right, I'm, I'm in control now. I'm making these decisions. Is that a right way to think about being an adult, about growing up, about being in life? Like you are driving your vehicle and not being driven or should we just let things just be the way they are? I think that's a, a beautiful, uh, would it be a metaphor or analogy or a way to think um, about it? Because you're right, Alex, you know, going back in time, considering the environments, the relationships and experiences that we were born into or that happened around us, we do lack control. Um, we even lack control in our ability to cope, especially when we're really young developmentally. Um, we need a caregiver. I mean, think of a crying infant. When an infant is crying, they're, they're in a state of dysregulation. So ideally, right, they have a caregiver who in that moment is attuned enough to show up to identify the need the child has to be fed, to be birthed, to be changed, right? And then the in doing and meeting that need, the child goes, you know, the, the stress is relieved. So we are in a state of need for others, for relationships from our earliest time. Um, and again, like I said, a lot of us in, in absence of having that, we develop all of these things that we do to cope, all of these ways that we can be to cope. Um, out of the, the necessity, I think is the word to put it, right? However, as we become an adult, we come to realize, most of us at least, that those habits and patterns don't serve us, that maybe many of us have lived the consequences of that same habitual way of being. So as an adult, yes, when we can empower ourselves to possibly even release the shame that maybe we carried from those wounding experiences and or mm -hmm. from the way that we've attempted to cope to the best of our ability, Though now assuming the responsibility, taking the steering wheel and creating change, empowering ourselves now and almost relearning all of that, relearning that we can create safety in ourselves or in our relationships in a new way. We have to update because again, a lot of these habits and patterns happen at a time where we didn't have the ability to take that responsibility, where we didn't have the support systems around us to help us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, the thing about shame, like, how do we get to a point? Because I've I've put stuff on Instagram or I put stuff in Twitter, or not even on Twitter, just in my newsletter or something, and I'm and I'm talking about shame. I get a lot of responses about how we need to not um, people are, are, are so attached to their shame, you know. And I think it, naturally that's what you would be, and. Um, Somebody did mention one time that like they use their shame as a as a kind of compass, as a kind of a direction to for the next thing. Um, I just wanted to know what you thought about like ways to kind of really unhinge and unhook ourselves from from shame, because um, that's something that permeates through so much of the way that we navigate through today. Um, you know, even myself as a man. It's kind of like there's there's shame there, and you know, and it's just so ingrained in like in the patriarchy itself. 
So what do you have to say on shame? Of course, shame, I, you know, right, from, for a lot of us, again, was, was born out of experience of showing possibly an aspect of ourself and the environment around us, not accepting it in, in whatever way it didn't feel acceptable. Um, and then we do, we hook onto that and to avoid that same pain or that disconnection that we felt or that invalidation that we felt in that moment where shame was activated for us, we do maybe use it as a compass to avoid putting ourselves in that same situation to avoid that same harm. So when we're working with shame, as all things, I think the first step is to become conscious, to become a witnesser of the role shame is playing. So whether you are listening and you're like, yes, shame is the compass for my life, witnessing the power, right? That that emotion and those experiences continue to have in your present moment. That's going to be part of the journey. For some of us, it's like I said, reframing the shame, acknowledging that all of these adaptations, the roles I'm playing, the masks I'm wearing in my current life have a function. They are playing a protective role. For some of us, that's that reframe that we can, you know, kind of acknowledge in our mind can help relieve the shame. However, for others, possibly not. For others, we have a very critical shaming voice that maybe lives in our head that narrates our day. Um, that thing, right? That critical voice that's keeping that shame alive. So the more attention listeners might've heard, right? Attention is being one of our most valuable assets. The more we're listening to that voice or hooking on and letting one thought, right? Of shame spiral into the next thought of shame. And now I'm down the pit of shame. We have to in real time, or it would be helpful in real time to begin to spend less time in that thought pattern, to acknowledge that it might be there. Remember, it's keeping me safe in that moment. So when that thought is offered, that shaming thought that at one point, kept me safe per se. I can thank it, right? Reframe it. You, you served your purpose. And now I would be best served if I removed my attention from it and didn't spend as much time. Because the more attention I'm paying to a thought, the more in my brain, I'm actually firing up that thought and the whole network that file follows, which is typically a feeling. And then the reaction in, in action to that feeling. So we have to then, and this is, I think, sometimes where we get a little magical thinking-y, where we can acknowledge, okay, I have shame. It plays a powerful role. Now, magically, it's going to go away because I've identified <laughs> shame and it's not working for me. However, here's where we have to embody a new experience by, like I said, spending a little less time in that shame spiral so that over time, then we can make room for a new experience, a less shameful, perhaps even more of a self-honoring feeling that will follow as I begin to insert new thoughts now. Yeah. I think people do kind of think it's just going to magically go away. And once you identify the shame, or even if you, and I think what I found as well is like, you think you've identified the shame with us, literally just the surface of it all. And then you get to the, the depths of it. And it's, it becomes so so rooted um i want to move on to trauma in a moment but i just wanted to read something from what you wrote um in your preface and it was about awakenings and you said awakenings are not mystical experiences that are reserved only for monks mystics and poets they are not only for spiritual people they are for each and every one of us who wants to change who aches to heal to thrive to shine with your awareness awakened anything is possible and that's so powerful because um, when we are in this space 
of talking about mental health and talking about healing and recovery. And we start to talk about this awakening and this higher self and ego and all of those things. People shut off and shut down. They're like, oh, you're talking about this, this airy fairy stuff or this woo-woo business and all of those things. I just want you to just um, just speak to that just for a moment, just to kind of, um, what do you mean by awakening and ego and all those things, just so that it can be solidified and people can really, really understand a way of thinking about it. I appreciate you asking, because I, I do hear a lot of these concepts do get cast mm. into that woo-woo um, basket, if you will. And I'll be the first to admit that, that I used to do that casting myself, um, you know, as a PhD, a scientist, if you will. I was trained in, in, as, the, you know, praying to the God of science. If it wasn't, you know, documentable in, in, a, in a study, um, in the studies that obviously I was being presented, it didn't exist. So anything that would mention the spirit or this higher self or these more indefinable aspects of our being or our daily operation, it was hard, I think, and it is hard um, for many of us to understand what we mean. Um, so you'll often hear when I talk about awakenings, um, I speak about it in reference to another concept that maybe listeners have heard of, the dark night of the soul. Again, that's another woo-woo area. What do you mean dark night of the soul? Um, the simplest way I can describe it and the way I define it is the dark night of the soul. Again, it's very individualized, um, what it looks and feels like. But typically, you even said this word earlier yourself, Alex, very beautifully, it is the either physical or emotional habits and patterns and symptomology that we experience as a result of that misalignment of not being connected to either our physical self, again, which is connected to our emotional self and or our spiritual self. So for me, right, like I described, it was all of the symptoms, all of the the, the stuff that was coming up as I neared my 30th birthday that was screaming to the service, the physical symptoms included, um, that really was driven by that lack of alignment. Um, yeah. And a lot of us go through that at different times um, in our life or, you know, kind of activated by sometimes external events when our, you know, life is really shook uh, and we have no option but to look at things differently. For many of us, we're living that in 2020. Um, 2020 could, could be the disruptor for a lot of our awakenings. However, some people take the path that I did. It wasn't a thing per se. It was an accumulation of those physical and emotional symptoms and patterned ways of being in relationship that resulted in that dark night of the soul experience. The inability mm -hmm. to tolerate life in that way anymore, calling me to question and then begin to create change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wanting to speak about trauma now. We hear this, again, it's another, I think over time, I don't know what it is, when you become cognizant of something and you hear it often, you're like, oh, okay, you hear it. And then you start to hear it a lot and it just becomes, you know, potentially overused. And um, like, you know, we, we, we hear that. And when I think of trauma, um, when I first heard, you know, the idea of tra traumatic experience and obviously post-traumatic stress and various um, other examples I thought it had to be a vigorous vigorous thing that had, sh that had shaken your world and over time that has not been the case do you want to speak to that yeah similar to you um, I was operating with that same definition right that trauma is connected to the event itself 
right? With a certain um, bare minimum, if you will, big, big T trauma is the most common highlighted um, to, mm. to designate whether or not an event could be labeled as trauma or not. And that's been backed in the field um, as crazy as it sounds to consider, as recent as in, I think it was the 90s, um, when in the psychological field, we the ACEs scale, Adverse Childhood Experiences scale, was developed. Um, and essentially, it was the first time that we were able to document that those big experiences in childhood, typically, of abuse, um, physical or sexual neglect, um, having a parent that's incarcerated or suffering from their own mental illness diagnosis, there's essentially 10 points on the scale the higher the number you say yes to, the higher the points that you accumulate, the higher your quote unquote trauma score is. And what we discovered at that time, that regardless of when that event happened in childhood, we could carry the effects through, again, phys physical symptomology or diagnoses and or psychological. So this was groundbreaking. This was the first time that we're mapping on our past as it colors our present. However, and I share my my own ACEs assessment quite frequently, because of course I took the scale myself uh, and I just scored a one. And that I think encaptures upwards of 60, 70% of the population and putting it simply, it's not very high in terms of trauma. However, I worked in all sorts of, of populations with all sorts of populations in all sorts of contexts, um, including those who are incarcerated, those in substance abuse facilities, those in inpatient units, that scored upwards of 10 even. What I saw, however, in the way of being, the conditioned patterning was a lot of the same. I came to realize that I was, like we talked about earlier, dissociating, disconnecting, keeping myself safe from that overwhelm in the same way that people who had actual trauma were. So for me, at first, it was a point of confusion, even shame. I was wondering what could be wrong with me because, um, quote unquote, nothing bad happened. And yet I'm still struggling in the same ways that people were to whom bad things did happen. And what I came to understand, and I now advocate for what I call an expanded definition of trauma, which actually removes the label of trauma from the event onto the experiencer. Because trauma really okay. is more about our ability or likely inability to cope. So now it can be, it doesn't have to be big, bad things that we don't feel equipped to cope with. It can be, as many of us experience, the consistent things that happen, the consistent um, maybe masks we have to wear born out of shame or roles we have to play where we push parts of ourselves aside that can mm. cause those same symptoms or those same patterns. So again, trauma um, is more the individual and how, how equipped am I or how not equipped am I to tolerate um, either the consistent stress or the cataclysmic, the, the overwhelming stress in any given moment. And in my opinion, all pathways lead for most of us to that trauma functioning, whether it's the trauma body or the trauma bonding, the patterning mm. and relationships that we embody as, again, as a result of those woundings and the adaptations. Here's a word from our partners this year. All right, so we are in a lockdown, but your beard doesn't have to be. <laughs> More time... I have been looking patchy patchy, especially in the very first lockdown that we had last year. 
But this doesn't have to be the fate of your lockdown buddy, your male friend or family member as Bifluence is offering you 15% off site-wide when you use the code time to talk 2021 So that's time to talk 2021 That's 15% off of their Kensington set, which is inclusive of a bore bristle brush, comb and scissors. Everything comes gift-wrapped as a gift to yourself or to someone else. And a little bit about Beardfluence is that it's a high-performance beard care brand focused on targeted treatments such as promoting better growth and helping conditioning. Their flagship product is the Beardfluence Night Oil and is powered by the scent of sandalwood, growth-promoting castor and peppermint oil, and the hemp seed oil, which helps resolve beard itching. So all you have to do is go to their Instagram at Beardfluence HQ and have a look at the rave reviews to know that it is good for you, your man, and your entanglement. But we don't promote entanglements on this show. We don't do that. So what I'm going to say is that you have to get detangled and get detangled with Beardfluence. Let them know I sent you. So let's get on with the show. Definitely going to get on to trauma bonding in a moment. But um, I wanted to just add on to the, onto the end of uh, idea of trauma, what you're saying. And I think it's so, what I realised um, over the past few years is that a lot of, one of the biggest traumas within my own personal experience and family has been death. And that has been kind of a real uh, impact and, and a big focus for me. And it's a lot of the reason why I'm entering into this kind of world and really considering about grief and looking at what that means. And we've seen a lot of grief over 2020 and we're going to be seeing a lot more of this collective grief and understanding. But on an in, as you say, it's an individual thing. And what I found was that having grown up with my siblings and um, one of four and seeing that and having conversations about childhood and about what experiences people had as childhood among my siblings and my cousins and whatnot and how we can all remember one situation so differently because things were just either blotted out of your mind or your experience i can over as the, i'm the oldest so i saw more but then people that you know depending on your birth order then after you kind of you what you see is slightly different um what is that phenomenon about uh you know when you when you kind of block out certain parts of your childhood and block out again that which is overwhelming um when we're not the more overwhelmed we are um like i say i used to check out on my spaceship so in absence of having emotional support or felt emotional support when stress happened in the household which it did a lot to protect myself um i would check out of of the current situation and what that resulted in furthering my my convincing that i was something wrong in my brain when i was entering my 30s was I had no memory really of my childhood. If you were to ask me, you know, what the movie of my childhood looked like, how holidays were spent, um, or really the day to day, I had very few memories. So what I came to realize is it wasn't actually a problem in my memory system as I once imagined it was. It was the fact that I wasn't fully present. Um, so a lot of times what we're, we're doing is we are, we have so many unconscious systems that are operating that are, you know, energetically connected to the world around us that operate so fast um, that it could, right, kind of shut us down in that way 
where we check out on our own private spaceship as an attempt to keep ourselves safe. And then we have those blocks in memory. You're also bringing up something, Alex, really beautiful, um, which I think is one of the most impactful lessons that we can embody um, when you bring up how four people can experience the same event and you could hear four different stories of that event, which is yeah. subjectivity of our human existence. We're all viewing the world through our own personal lens. We don't even share that lens with those that are closest to us, as, you know, in, in fullness, really. Um, and that's really important to consider because a lot of us do look outside for that validation. If we start to hear stories from our siblings, say, that differ um, some of us can create a habit of invalidating what we, you know, experienced in favor of what someone told us um, that we experienced or didn't experience. Though the reality of it is we're all subjective. Um, and I believe that the pathway to empowerment is to learn how to validate ourselves, how to stand in our own truth um, about what happened or didn't, in a even when we have that circumstance where it doesn't match up to the narrative yeah. that we're hearing around us. Yeah, I did an episode recently on drama triangles and um, just kind of talking about, you know, rescuer, the victim, and then the um, prosecutor and all those things and being neutral in those spaces. But the, um, it was, a lot of people have kind of said that, you know, even if you are being cognizant of all of that and, you know, trying to honour your truth, how do you, like, what are the kind of tools then that if you're in that familial kind of experience and then those things come up because it would be quite you know powerful emotional stuff this usually is when these things happen no this is my story and this is what happened no this is what happened when i and this is oh you're all seeing it wrong this is what i did and you're doing all of that and you know and, and again that's part of you know why you've created such a, a, an amazing body of work in this book and in the stuff that you do because it's about how to do the work and what if one person has done the work and then you're in a family and everybody else is just doing that around you how do you navigate that it's incredibly difficult and i think it's a natural tendency for those of us who are you know becoming a conscious witnesser of ourself and our patterns and for those of us who can trace them back right to their origin within our family units a lot of us do attempt to go back and to share our truth in hopes that it's validated, acknowledged, and even maybe apologized for that we're offered, right, compassion or sensitivity around what maybe our caregivers are hearing or our siblings are hearing. And while that can be incredibly powerful um, for a family, you know, or relationships to meet those truths and to integrate them, um, it's not always the case for us. So the practice, especially when we're talking about our family of doing the work, is complicated, um, for many of us, it's breaking that habit of looking outside for that validation and learning how to tolerate the moments of what I call misunderstanding, you know, and that's a very benign word for how it can feel um, when we go back and we, you know, we try to share these new realizations that we're having and the people aren't able that we're sharing them with to hear um, for many different reasons you know, because it is uncomfortable, I think, to call a lot of this into question. So for some of us, um, then we have to unpack a conversation around boundaries, right? How can I show up differently to this family who maybe isn't able to hold or space for my new reality um, in a way that, you know, allows me to continue to feel safe um, and authentic to myself? So this is where we have now the difficult journey, which I had to take myself 
of creating boundaries, of creating that space of safety so that as I went back home and as I continued not to get that validation, I still could feel safe and authentic to myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So challenging, isn't it? Uh, boundaries, honestly, Alex, I hadn't even heard the word um, and had any knowledge about what it meant or how it operated in action in relationships um, until I began this own journey of healing. And if I were to kind of outside of the chapter on consciousness in my book, which I think is incredibly important because it provides the foundation for change. Like we talked about uh, the boundaries chapter, I dedicated an entire book to it. I mean, an entire chapter to it in the book is incredibly important. Cause like I said, for many of us, especially within this conversation of trauma, we do feel unsafe and we do feel unsafe in relationships. So putting boundaries up to create that safety for ourselves while we operate still in those relationships, albeit differently, is an incredibly integral part of the healing journey. Boundaries. <laughs> Remember, um, my, that was the one, as soon as I went into therapy in 2017, um, it was it was like therapy 101. <laughs> it was like, set your core values, sort out your boundaries. And, and that was, the, and that was a hard, hard hill to climb, especially when it's uh, with people in your family and people that, you know, that you're closest to as well. So that's, that's amazing. But I wanted to just go on to trauma bonds. And um, I found that I had considered it slightly differently I'd love for you to kind of um, explain because I take your definition because I think that that makes more sense. Because <laughs> in my mind, it was more like connecting with people based on a, a shared trauma. Yes. But you, but you, but you do speak a lot about the kind of the way that you are brought up and the and the impact that you have with your parents. And whatnot. But so, yeah, can we, do you want to explain trauma bonds just a bit? Absolutely. And yeah, historically in the field, um, there was an early definition of trauma bond. Um, which is built around that concept of connection over trauma and um, the very confusing circumstance that a lot of us find ourselves in where we feel connected um, to a person or within a relationship where there is active boundary violation of any kind, where we love, hate um, our abuser in a sense, yet we are actively being violated in whatever way, yet we can't disconnect. Yes, while that's part of the experience of trauma bonding, I believe, again, in a much more expansive definition. Because what I know to be true about humans is that we're interpersonal creatures. Um, Meaning when we are born in the state of dependency that we're born into as a human, we can't keep ourselves alive. We need a caregiver to at minimum meet our physical needs. We're, as they say, wired to connect for survival reasons. We're extremely adaptive as children. So we prioritize staying connected with caregivers because it ensures our survival. And what we begin to do is modify ourselves. Like we've been talking about, we wear masks, we play roles. We begin to right, put the part, shameful parts of ourselves aside. And then what we do, because that time in our development is so critical to our essentially operating system in adulthood, we begin to repeat that way of being. We become the child who, you know, uh, enters the helper role within the family to becoming the helper at school, to becoming the adult helper, the helper in all of our relationships at large. So again, I expand the definition because I find ourselves as adults become locked in these relational patternings or ways of being 
that again, were born out of typically our oldest experiences where our needs possibly weren't fully being met. Um, and we are unable to update unless again, we become conscious, we see these habits and patterns, and then we begin to actively create change in our relationships. Mm. We used to speak on the archetypes. It was super interesting. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, could you, do you want to explain some of these archetypes and where they came from? Absolutely. So archetype, right, is a, a kind of categorical way of being. Um, again, I, I break them down in terms of these relational roles that many of us began to inhabit in childhood. Um, it's not an exhaustive list, and many of us can see ourselves in one or more um, of these roles. So several, um, I think, that are very common ones. I'll, I'll shout out my um, predominant archetype which is the overachiever. Um, my tendency toward overachieving was born out of a system in which I learned very early on that when I was successful academically and athletically, I had the attention of my parents, my mom in particular, who given her own trauma history um, was often distracted by her own stress reaction cycle. Yet when I brought home the A or when I was out playing softball as I played up through college, actually, it that was the closest that I felt to my mom. So I then became the overachiever in my relationships. The person who always tried to show up for someone else, regardless of whether or not it was impacting me, who hated disappointing people um, in any way in my life, who almost held myself up to this superhuman expectation um, that was impossible to fulfill. Other common ones are the caretaker. Um, the life of the part, the caretaker, again, who shows up in care of everyone else's needs in absence of acknowledging their own. The life of the party, another common one, the person who is never sad, who is always trying to spin things um, in, in, away from any sort of discomfort um, in their emotions. So there's several other articles yeah. that I mentioned, but really what's important here are beginning to witness consciously. What are the patterns? How do you consistently show up in your relationships? And how satisfying are you experiencing then those relationships? Yes. So you were saying about the um about those archetypes and they were so they were super interesting. Um and identif identify with the overachiever and the caretaker. Those are the ones that predominantly show up in predominantly showed up in my life <laughs> and and I've had to work hard to really manage that and understand what that means and um it's because you are kind of told that it's, those aren't necessarily bad things aren't you you're told that you know be the overachiever get the, get the come back with the good grades and you get all of the approval and you get all of that stuff and it's there for a fleeting moment and then you start to be hard on yourself when you don't reach those, those stages, right? Absolutely. I think a lot of these messages around achievement, um, this emphasis on doing as opposed to being can be found quite universally culturally, um, especially, you know, here in the West. I mean, it's very much we're indoctrinated from a very young age in our school system where, I mean, Alex, I see of and hear of parents who are testing their children into the, you know, uh, the kindergarten or the preschool to make sure that they can go to the college, you know, 18 plus years wow. later, um, which is just mind blowing to me. Um, another one that I think is quite universal, um, especially culturally, there's an influence it is on the caretaker. 
is with this idea. I was raised in a family where we had a predominant mantra um, coming mainly from my dad's, my father's side, who is second generation Italian immigrant, essentially that family is everything. Um, So putting someone, family, the system that is family first, I think a lot of us do, you know, receive these direct and sometimes indirect messages that there is honor um, in being selfless to that extent. Um, However, what I've learned is if we continue to push our needs aside in service of other people, not only do our needs continue to go unmet, causing that misalignment or those imbalances that we were talking about earlier, something even more problematic happens within our relationships. And I lived this journey myself we begin to become resentful of the people that we're continuously showing up for. Um, And some of us might end relationships as a result of, well, you're not meeting my need and you're not meeting my need and you're the problem. So I'll find the person that can meet my need, not realizing that we're playing an active role in keeping our needs unmet in outsourcing our sense of self through our service to others. Um, I'm of the belief that to be fully in service to others, we need to be fully in alignment within ourselves. I do believe our ultimate goal, the final chapter in my book is entitled interdependence. Um, Our goal, I do believe, is to show up in service of others. However, we need to create a habit of doing so in our full authentic expression as who we are. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm so big on showing up for showing up for ourselves. So big on that, and really going through those moments. I mean, I, I there were days when I, because I've been um, making sure I've been giving myself a personal commitment of getting into the body, yeah, for the past, or well, since February, and then yeah, going through to March now, and in those grueling moments in the morning, it's hard. You're just like, um, you're sitting there and I'm trying to do yoga and I have to do the full body stretch or I'm doing the circuits in my room here because um, I'm just trying to get everything done and, and trying to work hard. And there are days that I just don't want to show up there and don't want to be there at all. And um, I kind of like attribute that to things like, you know, getting up and going to therapy or um, taking taking action for the things that are tormenting us, you know, really taking the steps to show up and say, I won't take on this self-abandonment. I won't, I don't want to betray myself. You know, words of affirmation are my my top love language. So me saying those things really, really build me up, really put me in the, in the right space, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And you're also, I think, kind of, again, referencing the inherent discomfort that comes mm. along with doing that new thing with for you and me dropping into our body, that space that we've spent limited time in, that we've been so focused on those boxes, those achievements. Mm. The second I turn the focus inward, it's uncomfortable at minimum because it's unfamiliar. And then of course, right, if you're someone who has suffered, you know, or has had an accumulation of trauma-based experiences within the body, there might be an intrinsic feeling of, of threat, of not safety within that body. So I speak of, I, I define um, that discomfort as resistance and that pull to the familiar um, as a natural part of change. And the reason why I define it as that, I think a lot of us 
and me included in that morning, I've spent many mornings like that tears streaming down my face, trying to move my body. A lot of us could take that discomfort as an indication that, Oh, this is not good for me. My body is, you know, rejecting this experience. However, I think if we can expand um, to the possibility that what I'm feeling is actually the discomfort with doing something new with being in my body that I'm just not used to being in, um, we can actually create that space to continue then to walk through that discomfort towards the transformation that lays on the other side. Amazing. Well, just before we get to the end of this amazing conversation, I've loved speaking with you, Nicole. It's been amazing. Um, got just two questions from some listeners. Um, the first one is, should you be able to get over your childhood trauma? Is it something that you have to get over? Um, and what classifies you as doing the work? That's one question <laughs> from one person. Great question. Um, so the question that I would want to open um, for the asker of that question or anyone else who is resonating with that is to just take a moment and explore what they mean by get over. Um, because I think a lot of us have this idea that we should erase that experience, you know, from our, our, our life experience, our journey. And um, whether or not that's possible or not, um, for many of us, it just becomes integrated. It becomes part of who we are. However, it doesn't become the place from which we react or the place, like I said, that subconscious space from which we make our decisions. Um, so we can honor all of the paths and the journeys that we've tread throughout life and all of the pain that has come along with it and mm -hmm. still empower ourselves to create that new future or that future self as I speak of. Um, mm -hmm. So doing the work um, essentially is showing up in action. Um, it really highlighted, I think, a limitation that I kept coming up against, whether it's a conversation around therapy and the therapy hour or even, you know, a workout regimen where I go to the gym maybe once a week. My question always that I reflect back is that's amazing. We can find incredible support in those practices. However, what I urge listeners to do is to observe themselves outside of those hours of time and to find, again, that powerful subconscious that is typically at the ready. So the work and the reason why the book is titled that, it's honoring that bridge that we have to build because a lot of us sit on the one side with incredible insight and awareness. And we know all of the reasons why we struggle in the ways that we do. Yet for most of us, that can be the most frustrating side to be standing on if we don't have that bridge to actualize it into that daily change. So doing the work again, and it could begin, and I suggest it does begin with one small daily promise. Harnessing again, our subconscious's desire to not do any small things differently at all. The more we try to do new tomorrow, the more overwhelmed our subconscious is going to be. Mm -hmm. So when we focus on just creating one new intention each day, we can actually lay the bricks to doing that actualization, to putting that promise now in action. Yeah. Yeah. So showing up in action. Showing up that. in action. I love that. And all of the discomfort that comes along with that and all of the shifts and changes that Will begin to happen around us as a result of now living into that new action mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and yeah i resonate deeply with what you said about you know not wanting to not looking at it as, as get over or you know i had a conversation which will be out um in a couple of weeks actually and with one of my friends and she was talking about um sobriety and she was saying how you know it's not about giving up it's just about choosing not to 
and that was and uh, this resonates in the same way you know it's not about getting over it's about doing the work and showing up for yourself and getting through i love that choosing not to we can even expand that too it's about choice Mm. i go on and on about choice and how consciousness expands us into that space of choice um we are gifted in each moment with choice and we may not be operating from that empowered space we might be allowing our subconscious to live the reactions as opposed to that empowered choice um, but I love that we can, if we can pull back in each moment and acknowledge the choices that are in front of us, we can begin to shift ourselves into that empowered moment. Yeah. And the second question was, um, how do we navigate breakthroughs so that we don't regress back into our old selves? Am I, if I'm imagining um, breakthroughs are meaning new awarenesses, new ways of being, is yeah. if that's how I'm defining breakthrough yeah. again, because we could all define, we all define everything right. really in our own remember, subjective ways. Um, if that is what the, the speaker or the person who asked that question means, again, it's, it's acknowledging that with breakthroughs do come discomfort, do come new ways of being. Um, particularly in our relationships, which if they involve another human, which they likely do, who has their own patterning and expectations around this relationship, um, that breakthroughs can be uncomfortable and likely will be uncomfortable. And like I said, for some of us, it's that simple reframe, just acknowledging that the discomfort is part of transformation can be the most helpful piece. Um, and for others, it's learning how to tolerate the discomfort. Um, I'm learning not how to turn away or check out on the spaceship or just go right back to where we're comfortable, learning how to continue to show up as the world changes around us. And like I said, there can be mourning that happens. There can be grief like we talked about. There can be a lot of emotion that comes up as our worlds change. Um, though, again, honoring it as part of the journey, I think, is the most helpful piece of advice. Yeah. I just want to say thank you so much for all the work that you're doing and this book is fantastic. Um, yeah, I just want to round up and also I want to say where can people find you? I hate, I hate asking this question to people who are so prominent online, but where can people find you if they want to find you? No, I appreciate it, Alex. And thank you so much for sharing your time, space and energy with me, for being curious, for doing the work that you're doing out in the world. Um, I truly believe it's as we continue to do the work ourselves and embody our authentic being that those ripples really do happen around us. And for those of you listening who haven't met my ripple yet, at least on Instagram, um, the platform where it all began as the dot holistic dot psychologist can come visit me there where each and every day I put out um, helpful healing content, daily tools, um, really, you know, what, which I hope is equalizing access to this information, regardless of wherever you are in the world. Um, I have a website that's getting uh, an upgrade, a new look um, that contains information about my virtual learning community that's quite international at this point called the Self Healer Circle. And the website address is yourholisticpsychologist.com. And those of you who have met my YouTube, um, that is also getting a revamp and will be rolled out again within the next couple weeks. Um, and I will put out weekly videos on the YouTube channel, The Holistic Psychologist. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. And to everybody listening, I'll catch you next time.
as ever thanks go out to pure creation media shout out to ryan now for producing the show and again i want to say thank you to you guys for showing up each week being brave encouraged and kind so stay strong enjoy your week and i look forward to catching you next time bye